I want you to think about some of the most memorable sermons you have ever heard in your life. Um, I, I, I was reading uh, about some uh, preachers who have had some interesting experiences, like the, the one man who got up into the pulpit one day and there was somebody who had left a note. And the note just had a one word written on it. It was fool. Uh, somebody obviously had put there uh, for him to see as he uh, began the sermon that Sunday. Uh, he didn't know uh, what to do at first, but then the Spirit kind of prompted him and he said, well, you know what, I have, in my uh, 30 years of being a preacher, I have often gotten letters that have not been signed. Uh, this is the first time that they signed their name but forgot to write the letter. That would have been a memorable sermon. Um, uh, there, there was a, a story about one very young preacher who had just gotten married, didn't have any kids yet, and, and he was getting into this whole idea of, of he had the Ten Commandments of raising children, okay? Ten Commandments of raising godly children. That was, his, that was one of his early uh, sermon titles. Uh, about five years later, when he started to have kids, he, he uh, came back to that sermon and he called it Five helpful hint, I mean, ten helpful hints for parents. And when his kids got to be teenage uh, aged, he, uh, he preached that sermon again and he called it um, ten helpful suggestions to maybe uh, encourage you as a parent because he started to realize he didn't know all of the answers. Uh, I, I debated whether to tell this one or not. Um, and I figure Pal Butte can probably uh, deal with this one. Uh, true story. My dad one time was preaching a sermon, and a man who was in the front row, in the middle of his sermon, just got up and walked out angrily, just very offended. You could just tell. And it kind of shook dad up a little bit, but he kept going on with his sermon, and, and, and the man actually just went home. And his wife had to kind of go out after him. And um, my dad was talking about hassles, hassles in life, hassles in, in uh, the workplace, hassles at home, and, and, and turning those hassles into hallelujahs. That was kind of my dad's way of, uh, of thinking with, with, uh, with alliteration and things like that. And um, so really what he was talking about was not really offensive, he didn't believe, uh, hassles in the church. But as the phone call came from this man's wife apologizing, she said, Don, it, it's okay. Uh, Herb just couldn't hear the H in your word hassle. So he thought that you were being very crude in your sermon. So we, we, we laughed about that and, and uh, just always kind of keep, keep that uh, story in, in the back of our, our, our brains. This morning, I, I do want to talk to you about the most memorable sermon ever preached. And, and, and it's, this is a series. It's going to launch a series that's going to take us through the end of the year. We're going to take a, a close look at the Sermon on the Mount. Just three chapters in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and they're not the only words that Jesus ever used while he was teaching, but, but the Holy Spirit prompted Matthew to record these words because I, I think that they represent the bulk of Jesus' meaning when he announced that the kingdom of God was now in our midst. Yes, Jesus had a mission, and that mission was to go to the cross to die for the sins of the world and to, to raise with power three days later. But Jesus also had a message. The, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they had missed the mark 
by a long shot. They had taken the, the message of the Old Testament and had complicated it to a ridiculous degree. It, it was more in the style to look godly than to actually be godly. And so, as Jesus would preach this sermon, it was a way of calling us uh, to, to understand that God's people are, are called out of this world to live in a different kingdom. His people, God's people, had adopted the way of the world. They had, they had uh, bought into the system of self, and Jesus' message was calling them back to live in a very radically different way. Well, let me tell you about a guy named David Wise. David Wise was a winner of the gold medal in the Winter Olympics of 2014. Now, David Wise is part of these, uh, these X-game kind of guys. He's a skier, but he skis the half-pipe, and so that, that's kind of a newer uh, Olympic sport, and, and he won the gold medal there, um, uh, along with uh, then in 2018, four years later, he took home the gold again. Now, after winning the gold the first time, NBC sent a reporter named Skylar Wilder out to, to interview and, and to do a piece on David Wise. And part of the article reads like this. David Wise is at the top of his sport. Again, this is the X Games, kind of the extreme skiing, kind of the more youthful uh, uh, of, 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 the, of the sport. David Wise is at the top of his sport. He's always smiling among his friends and competitors. However, he's not like the rest of the field. He is mature, married, a father. Uh, even at such a young age, Wise has the lifestyle of an adult. And so he helps out around the house wearing a baby Bjorn baby carrier around. And, and he also attends church regularly and says he can see himself one day, a little later down the road, becoming a pastor. That's kind of a neat thing to, to know about David Wise. The headline that NBC chose to run with this article was this, David Wise's alternative lifestyle leads to Olympic gold. Did you catch that? The alternative lifestyle. Now, I, I bet you that that's not what you normally would think of when you hear that term. Somebody who actually lives cleanly, lives morally, lives with, as a good father and as a good husband. That, that's an alternative lifestyle. <laughs> now, but have you ever considered that that's exactly what it means to be a disciple of Jesus? Paul tells us in Romans 12 that we're not to be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed. We're not like the world as disciples. We never were. We never will be. Being a disciple of Jesus means living an alternative lifestyle from what the world lives. Swimming upstream, going against the flow, living in an upside-down kingdom. Now, what does that look like? 1918, 1918, a lady named Helen Howarth Lemmel wrote the words that would eventually make its way into a hymn. She wrote these words, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You know, throughout history, God has called people out of the world to live in a kingdom of such brilliant light 
That when we look at the things of the world, they do grow strangely dim in comparison with God's bright light. God called Abraham, leave your country, Abraham. Leave your people, leave your father's household and go to the land that I will show you. And then God promised him that he would make him into a great nation, a nation that would belong to God. God then called his people out, uh, his people Israel, uh, through Moses. He, He told Moses, speak to the children of Israel. Say to them, I am the Lord, your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live. You must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. Jesus basically says the same thing as he calls his disciples. He'll say here in the Sermon on the Mount that you have heard it say, you've heard it say, uh, said such and such, but I tell you, and what he says then is something completely different than what they had heard. Jesus was all about turning the system of the world upside down. He knew the only way that his followers would shine like a city on the hill, the only way that they would make a difference in this world is if they would be different, if they would live a different kind of life than what the world's standard was. And so here in Jesus' teaching, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, there is a sharp contrast between dark and light, between bland and savory, between discontentment and fulfillment. And what Jesus does here in the Sermon on the Mount is to establish what it means to live as a citizen of a different kingdom. We we read in Colossians chapter 1, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. So now we are living in this kingdom of the sun, and it's marked by a different character and different relationships, a different standard of integrity, a a different type of influence, a different righteousness, and a different level of commitment. So ultimately, folks, if you have made that commitment to accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you now live in and now you live for a vastly different kingdom than what you had been living for because you're a new creation. You are now a disciple. You are employed by the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And from here on out, it's not about your kingdom anymore. It's about God's kingdom. And and that's not just about the afterlife. God, God called you by a new name, gave you a new citizenship, sets before you a new commission. And that's what these next several weeks, maybe perhaps even to the end of the year, is going to look like as we are here studying the Sermon on the Mount. Now, you will find in Matthew, Matthew's the first gospel in the New Testament. So if you'll go to Matthew, um, let me see here real quick. If you're using the Pew Bibles and you have the hardback version, it's on page 958, 958. If you're using the softbound maroon Bible out there, it's 535. But it's Matthew chapter 5, and, and we're going to begin right there in verse 1. This is what it says. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Now, first of all, I, I want to talk about mountains. I mean, I'm, aren't you glad that we can see ours now again? Amen. <laughs> After that smoke cleared, and we can finally see those mountains. Now we need those mountains to be 
white, right? So our reservoirs can start to fill up again. But uh, mountains are significant in, in the life of Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus. Often Jesus would uh, uh, go away by himself, take a hike up the mountain, just to be alone, just to recharge his spiritual batteries. By the way, if Jesus had to do that, are, are you taking some time to, to recharge your spiritual uh, batteries from time to time? If Jesus had to, what makes you think that you don't have to do that? And Jesus chose mountains to do that. He'd go up on a mountain to spend some time with, with, his, with his father. Sometimes he would go up to the mountain with, with his intimate followers, and he, he wanted to share with them a, a, an experience, like the time that he would go and be transfigured in all of his glory. And uh, there was Peter and James and John, just his closest uh, friends, his closest followers there. Um, but on this occasion, Jesus is not trying to get away. He's not trying to, to have a retreat with his, just his close friends. We, we read that there are crowds that follow him up the mountain. So I believe that Jesus is using this time to get them away from any distraction that might compete with the message that he has for them. I, I also think it's very interesting that he would choose a mountain to bring these concepts because it's like a parallel to Moses. You see, Moses back in, uh, back in Exodus went up a mountain in order to receive the law from God. And Jesus then would go up on a mountain to give this sermon. Uh, and Jesus connects them in, in uh, chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 18, where he says, don't think that I've come to destroy the law and the prophets, but I, I didn't come to destroy them, but to fulfill them. Uh, Jesus will, in the Sermon on the Mount, quote Moses' law in regard to murder and adultery and oaths, for example. But instead of tearing them down, he's actually raising the bar, expanding those laws uh, to, to include matters of our heart, not just the actions of our body. In, in this way, Jesus was actually truly fulfilling the law by bringing it from external tablets that were given on the mountain to Moses to all of a sudden bringing them in and writing them on the human heart, as God said that he would do through the prophet Jeremiah. He said, this is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, Jeremiah 31, 33, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. So Jesus is choosing to go up a mountain connecting the Mosaic law with the spirit of the law that will one day live in the heart of every believer. So he begins then to teach. He sits down rabbi style. Uh, that's the way they would do it. The, the, uh, to, to, in today's world, your teacher stands up and everybody sits down. Uh, the rabbi in this day would sit down and everybody else would stand up. So you, you want to try that? No, I'm kidding. You don't have to do that. And, and he teaches with authority. And he outlines God's design once again to bring blessing to those who follow his ways. And he outlines them in what is known as the Beatitudes. Now, when I was growing up in Sunday school, the Beatitudes, that's what we would do. We would have a little cartoon B, the Beatitudes. And, and, uh, and that was a, a, a kind of neat way of getting my attention, but that's really not what it means. Though Jesus is going to talk about our attitude, it's not really attitudes uh, uh, to be, right? That, that's not what that word... Beatitudes is just a fancy way of saying blessed. 
blessed. And now some translations use the word happy. You'll, you'll start to read and says, hey, happy are you if. Um, and that's okay. That's part of blessed. But, but I think it's a poor translation because it misses the boat. It misses the complete picture. And it also has a dangerous um, connotation because happy actually comes from a root word that basically means happen. Like if something good happens to me, I'll be happy, right? And so we have kind of of connected in our minds happy with what happens to us. Um, Psychology Today magazine asked 52,000 Americans what would make them happy. The answers range from friends, job, love, recognition, success, attractiveness, city life, rural life, religion, recreation, parenting, children, and marriage. What do all those things have in common? They're all external. They're all things that can happen to us. It's the when-then thinking. The when I get out of school, then I'll be happy. When I get a job, then I'll be happy. When I get married, then I'll be happy. When I have kids, then when the kids leave, I'll be happy, right? There's a book in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes, written by King Solomon, a man who literally had everything that anybody would ever want. And he comes to a conclusion about happiness in regard to to, to blessing. After this life of searching for happiness, he concludes that everything that the world will tell you that will make you happy, possessions, power, pleasures, none of that will actually bring lasting fulfillment. And so when you translate the Beatitudes, blessed, as just happy, you're missing something. You know, his conclusion, King Solomon's conclusion was everything is meaningless if if that's what you're trying for, happiness. Everything is meaningless. It's like chasing after the wind. The Beatitudes that Jesus begins his sermon with seems to transcend what happens to us as believers. See, I don't believe that any of these things hinge on external circumstances, but, but they really are about an inward decision that we have to, to not just have happiness in our life, but everlasting joy. About a month ago, when I was first gone, I, I was actually down uh, that weekend in, in Sacramento. Uh, Bryce Jessup, the uh, president of the Bible college that I had gone to, um, he had passed away at 85 years old. And uh, it was important for Jenny and I to go there. Uh, we loved Bryce. Bryce had been a part of my life for 44 years. And, and as we listened to all of the eulogies and, and the things that people would say about Bryce, it, it was very, very clear that from an early age, Bryce was taught that rejoice is a choice. Rejoice is a choice. It doesn't matter what happens to you. You can have joy. Rejoice is a choice. And through thick and thin... Bryce learned to trust God and to, to have a joy that transcended what happened to us. And so I, I like how one Bible commentator translates blessed, and he says it's basically blessed. To be blessed is to have the privilege of receiving divine favor. Begins with God. And it's the, it's the privilege of receiving divine favor. Uh, Psalm chapter 1 says, blessed is the man 
who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Blessed is the man who walks, not by the way that the world would want you to walk, but in the way of the Lord, God's law. You see, there's this supernatural connection to God's favor when we follow his path when we live in his kingdom. The inner joy that's there for those who understand that God has our best in mind. And he's called us into this intimate relationship with him as we learn to reflect his holiness in our lives. So as you look at the eight Beatitudes, uh, we can tear them apart and actually we will probably uh, spend several weeks looking at them, but I, I don't want you to miss this. They really are all together. They're all characteristics about what the Christian life is to be about because it is God's character that we see here. The the Beatitudes represent the whole of the the Christ-like character that God has called us into in this upside-down kingdom. So this morning, I just want to look at the first one. Uh, We're running out of time. and, and, And as we are seeking God's favor in our life, as we live in his kingdom, the very first thing that Jesus says is, is pretty profound. And I think everything else that he will say in the Sermon on the Mount hinges upon getting this one concept. It's all about spiritual humility. Spiritual humility. Look, look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is the poor in spirit. It totally makes sense for Jesus to start there. If you consider the example of Jesus, the way that he lived, the model that he presented to his disciples, the very teachings that are found in the gospel, you will see that humility is foundational. Humility is foundational if you want to live in God's kingdom. Why? Because those who do not accept their spiritual poverty will attempt to stand on their own efforts and their own righteousness, and they will fail miserably. You cannot live in God's kingdom if you are not willing to step away from your own kingdom. Again, Abraham, going back to Abraham, the father of our faith, he had been living in this enlightened land He had been connected to a vast empire. And God challenged him to leave all of that behind so that he would find a divinely favored land and a divinely favored life. Have you ever thought about what would have happened if Abraham had said no to God? If he was not willing to be humble and to leave his own kingdom behind as God called him? And the whole Bible would be based on somebody else's faith in God. And Abraham's descendants would never have received the promised land of favor that God had in store for them. You see, in an upside-down kingdom, we must be willing to do things that seem upside-down, that seem unnatural to to our sinful nature. We must be willing to step away from pride, and from the desire to have our own realm, our own way, our own will. This is truly what it means to be poor in spirit. 
To be poor in spirit is to be totally dependent upon God for our righteousness. Jesus is talking about having a humility that openly admits, I don't have it together, and neither do you. And that's fine because we're on this road together. Uh, we've not yet arrived. We, we haven't let, yet learned it all. We're, 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 not, we're not the sum total of the universe. <laughs> to be poor in spirit is to humbly bow our hearts to a supernatural power, a greater power, to our God, understanding that apart from his Christ, we are spiritually destitute. This, by the way, was Jesus' point to the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation, where he would tell them, listen, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Well, you say, well, I'm rich. I have acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched and pitiful. You're poor. You're blind. You're naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. The church didn't think that they needed anything from God, and God said, because of that, you're useless. I'm going to throw you up. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. God's advice to them was, understand your spiritual poverty and the fact that you need me. It doesn't matter what else you have in life. You've got to understand your spiritual poverty in order for you to have God's divine favor and to be blessed. So where does the blessing of the beatitude of humility play out? How does being poor in spirit increase God's favor? Uh, I want to close today with three suggestions. First of all, I believe that humility, very practically, reduces stress. Humility reduces stress. You know, when we're humble and realize that there is a God and that we are not Him, then we can release this, this feeling that we have to control the universe, that we have to be in control all the time. That brings a lot of stress, folks. I, I love how uh, one little uh, saying that I saw um, one time, actually I think it may be in one of our restrooms, is resign from being the, 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 uh, in charge of the universe. If you want less stress in your life, resign being the boss of the universe. Let God be God, in other words. When you realize that you don't have to have all the answers, when you're comfortable leaning into Jesus when life gets crazy, then the idea is that peace of God that transcends all understanding will come and guard your heart and your mind and protect you from the stress of having to do it all on your own. Number two, I believe that humility will improve your relationships. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he speaks of God humbling him as he visits this church for a second time. Uh, um, why that's important is because Paul has this legitimate beef with the church in Corinth. They had been blowing it big time. 
It would have been so easy for Paul to come in and lay down the law in a serious way and be condescending and tell them how bad they are and how good he is. But by allowing God to humble himself, Paul, by adopting this idea of spiritual poverty, Paul is able to have more compassion on the folks that are blowing it. His relationships with other people are based on the fact that we have all sinned in some way. Humility will allow us to approach even the worst of sinners in a way that shows that we all are on this journey. We all have things that fall short of of the glory of God, and we are all sinners saved by the blood of Jesus. To be able to say, yeah, I get it. That's not a great way to live, but let's come alongside of each other and help each other out so that we can get better together. That makes for much healthier relationships with other people who are on that same journey. Lastly, humility releases God's power. Humility allows God to really come in and take control. When the people who were waiting at home were waiting for these people who had been there at the Sermon on the Mount, when they got home and they were asked by their loved ones who were not able to make it, what did Jesus say? Well, what does he want us to do? I could just imagine that the answer was, oh, you wouldn't believe it. This is crazy. What he's asked us to do seems impossible. There is no way we can do everything that he wants us to do. In fact, he says that we've got to be more righteous than the Pharisees who were the top dog righteous man. This is bad. Righteous wise in their day. So they said, man, this is crazy. It's out of reach. The thing that we need to keep in mind throughout this whole series is this. The concepts that we will read in the next several weeks and and months, they are about living in God's kingdom. So church, you've got to remember that the only way that you and I can live in God's kingdom is through God's power. Not yours. If you hear a sermon and say, man, I just got to, I got to be more this. I got to be more this. You know what you got to do? You got to be more surrendering. Is what you got to do. You got to be more surrendering to God's power so that God's power can come in because God calls you to live in the kingdom and he's going to empower you to live in that kingdom. That's what he promises to do. James 4 tells us, humble yourself before the Lord in the sight of the Lord. And guess what? He will lift you up. He will lift you up. When we bow down before God and admit our dependency on him, he's going to lift us up. He's going to give us strength to make it through the day. Humility will release his power in our life. And that's why God says, I'm going to keep you in weakness. That's why he allows us sometimes to struggle. The moment that we think that we've got it under control, we stop God's power flowing into our lives. And if I move forward to what God has called me to do, to live the life that he has called me to live, I must have the mindset that this is only possible through the power of God. And that, folks, is what it means to be poor in spirit so that God's favor can then come and flow into our lives and we can be blessed. I I would challenge you, church, to stay connected in these next several months as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. As you you connect to God's power, be humble. Be humble. You're going to hear some things that seem impossible. Things that deep down inside you've tried and tried to do on your own, but you've, you've all but given up. I want you to continue to come before God with an attitude of humility. 
like the man who says to Jesus, I do believe, but help those parts of me that don't believe. Lord, we are willing, but in order for us to live in this upside-down kingdom, we have to be dependent on you. Right now, I'd invite the worship team to come on up. And as they do, let me just tell you what the bottom line is. God calls you and me, all of us. God calls all the people who call themselves disciples to exchange their citizenship from this world to live now in the upside-down kingdom. And remember this, where God calls you, he, he promises to equip you. The attitude of being poor in spirit is to fully understand the proverb that says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To live fully in God's kingdom, to allow the kingdom to come in your life, takes wisdom. Wisdom that will only come when we embrace what it means to follow. So right now, if, uh, as, as we close up, I, I invite you to stand with me. Uh, this is a two-fold process. First of all, it's, a make, it's about making Jesus Lord of your life, um, trusting in his death and resurrection in your life to save you. Nothing that you can do can bring you uh, to, into a right relationship with, with God. You need a Savior, and God provided that Savior in Jesus. And if you need to make that decision today, I would invite you to come on down as we sing our last song, and we'd love to talk with you about what that means. But secondly, it's about making him boss. Not just the Savior of your life, but Lord of your life. Um, uh, Making Him your sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. Surrendering more and more to His Spirit. So that when the Spirit comes to live inside of you, that purpose of recreating you into the image of Jesus can happen as you surrender more and more. And so I'm going to be praying for you, uh, those of you who have already made that decision, that God would work in your life during this, this entire series. And if you feel the need today to to take those steps, it, it begins with just a prayer of surrender and commitment.